This is Andrea Boydman. I'm the Executive Director of Osteo Science Foundation, and I'm joined today with our Science and Education Liaison, Dr. Myron Tucker, for our podcast series, Generations of Regeneration. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Ox, who is a professor of oral and maxillofacial surgery at UPMC. And Dr. Ox has been a friend of Osteoscience Foundation uh, almost since the very beginning. He was one of the very first speakers at our uh, first educational event back in 2017. So we're really excited that Dr. Ox has done a webinar series, uh, part of our webinar series for us. And um, we're glad that you were able to be on our podcast today. So welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. Mark, it's great to have you here. And uh, just as a start, um, if you'd uh, just give everybody kind of the rundown of your educational journey from your uh, undergraduate years uh, up through the professional positions that you've held and where you are now. Well, just uh, I started at the University of Pittsburgh undergrad, went to dental school there, then did my residency at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. During that time, I was able to get my medical degree and achieve that. And then my first position was at the University of Florida and became program director there. Loved it, uh, but moved back uh, closer to home at the University of Pittsburgh in 1992. I've been there since, was program director a number of years, and then was chairman there for uh, close to 20 years. And um, recently stepped aside from that, but I'm still a full-time active professor there. Great. That's awesome. So, um, you know, I, I'm always curious because I know there's so many different, um, different specialties one can go into. Mm -hmm. What was it that made you choose oral and maxillofacial surgery? What was it that made you say, yes, this is, this well, is my path? Yeah, it's interesting, Andrew. Some people don't have a defining moment. I did. Um, I was a third-year dental student. I was going to be an orthodontist. I knew I was going to be an orthodontist since age 14. Wow. And I went to dental school. And then one day at the end of third year, there's a gentleman from New York came, Dr. Stanley Bierman. And he lectured on jaw surgery, corrective jaw surgery, and um, he showed amazing cases. And I was just awestruck. And I waited till every student in the building left, and I went up afterwards and helped him pack up his stuff. And I said, Dr. Beerman, what would I have to do to do that? And he gave me some advice, was very kind. He himself was a pit grad. A lot of people don't know that. And his nephew is now uh, the chairman at, at Cornell. But um, Dr. Beerman said, this is what I would do, Mark. And I took mental notes and I did exactly what he told me to do. And that's how I ended up in Chapel Hill at University of North Carolina. So that's very cool. Yeah. So Mark, through our careers, all of us have had uh, mentors at different times, undergraduate, uh, during your residency training, um, and through your professional career, who were, you know, five or six people, usually it's a handful that have really had an influence on you. Well, at Chapel Hill, I, I was very fortunate to train what I consider the golden age, and I call it mentoring by committee. I had, you know, Dr. Ray White, Dr. Bill Terry, Dr. Tim Turvey, and then Dr. Myron Tucker, who is this young whippersnapper out of the Navy, <laughs> who when I interview wasn't even there, and I show up day one, and he was a throw and a bonus to the situation. I thought, wow. And so each of these people uh, brought different things to the table for me, uh, whether it's surgical techniques or uh, encouragement. And I was incredibly blessed that people, there was always someone there when I need them there to help guide me and encourage me. So it was a wonderful time. And Dr. Ray White actually directed me to go to the University of Florida and take a job with Dr. Frank Dolwick, who's just a, a gentleman beyond belief. And he was really a great person to start out my career with. He fostered me, encouraged me, uh, actually encouraged me to start doing some incredible trauma stuff with an oculoplastic surgeon there, Dr. Alan Lesner. 
And so it really expanded my horizons. I encourage young men and women when you first get out, and especially if you're in academics, grow your boundaries, don't let them shrink. And so while I was at Florida, I really grew a lot. And then, then I, I came back to University of Pittsburgh and, and there a gentleman named Dr. Tom Braun, who's a lifelong friend, was actually my professor of anatomy and is an oral surgeon, uh, was chairman of the department at University of Pittsburgh and recruited me to come back. And uh, he just uh, was an incredible strong influence in my life. So I've been lucky to always have someone there to push me, but also to pick me up. So um, I'm very lucky. And I don't want to embarrass Myron, but, uh, but he's been there throughout always, you know, and I always say when we get together is we've enjoyed the very low times together and also the very high times. So that makes for a good depth of relationship because you appreciate the good times all that much more and you want to understand each other better. So um, he's somebody who's just been an incredible lifelong friend and he's taught me more about life than he has uh, oral max face surgery, which is saying something because he taught me a lot of oral surgery as well and facial reconstruction. That's really nice. Well, thanks. it's all true. I've all been, always been uh, super proud of Mark. I've, I've mentioned at a couple of uh, lectures early in my career, um, the names that he mentioned uh, were my badge of honor. I hung around Ray White and Tim Turvey and Bill Terry. Um, at the end of my career, um, my pride is in uh, the people that I've trained that have made it to the top. And so uh, my, my badge of honor is, I, I know Mark Ox, I helped train Mark. So he's, he's been a mentor to me in some ways as well. So Mark, you've been, you've been in this a, a, a long time and particularly in the, if you'll focus kind of on the regenerative medicine aspect of this and think about uh, when you were a resident and we were taking rib and hip and maybe had a little HA and that's basically all we had. Uh, what, do, what do you think are the big monumental uh, two or three things that have just changed reconstructive and regenerative surgery? Yeah, well, I always laugh when I was a resident, we tell patients getting hip craft, well, this won't hurt much. Yeah, not if you're not the one having it done to you, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things that I've found with virtual planning and regeneration is that I really want to avoid all costs taking tissue from the patient because that's not house money. That's, that's, that's very precious to the patient. And when they lose, they lose big. And also there's a price to pay. So I really want to avoid harvesting from the patient. Um, so I, I think that in my career, the two biggest things besides early on rigid fixation, I think once I became a faculty member and helped develop some of these things, there's virtual planning, the digital world, but the virtual planning is incredible, both in giving you insight, diagnosing, planning, and then all the computer-assisted aids that we now have, whether it's templates, cutting guides, uh, splints, uh, navigation that's paired with all this. I mean, it really uh, has changed the way we practice. And then the other uh, exciting thing in osteoscience is right in the thick of this is the biologics. And when you look at virtual planning in the digital world and the biologics, um, they're no longer a curiosity or, or an article you read and something you say, boy, that's interesting. It's stuff we're using in our daily practices. So it, it's, it's made it beyond the bench. It's, it's beyond bedside. It's in our offices. And that's just the tip of it. When we look at all the compounds that are out there now, just look at currently with the pandemic, the research and how we can ramp it up. When we identify a need and we put talented people together, there isn't anything we can't achieve. And so I'm looking at the biologics that are currently available, and it's going to be up to us and companies like um, Osteoscience and Geisha looking at partnering at, with other companies that other technologies are acquiring or, or partnering with so that we can put these in a milieu that are predictable and will work. In other words, I, I picture a day where not only are you printing in situ and a compound grows bone, but that you inject something in the patient that tells it to stop growing so that we don't get over bone growth. In other words, we're gonna sell signal at the macro and the micro level. 
We can deal with electrical field currents possibly. There's all sorts of things we can do to regulate the growth and healing or to speed it up so it doesn't take a year to get a regenerate. Maybe we can do that in four months. Um, I don't know that we'll ever get to an overnight delivery um, at our doorstep, but we can certainly speed things up. And the, the, the most frustrating thing for me is when patients read about this or we tell them about it, we still can't speed up the patient's biology. And that's how I explain to them. We're used to the instantaneous error. They're excited about what we can do but we still have to rely on the patient's biology. So now we can manipulate the patient's biology. And when we can do personalized medicine where we can figure out what genes trigger this, does this patient have a strong gene that augments this? Are they a suitable candidate? Or if we have failures, who is it that fails in? And can we identify what about their genomic or health history precludes us from using it so we don't harm people? So we really, I, I think between the biologics companies and, and foundations like osteoscience, and when we start to get into personalized medicine, biologics, uh, well, and you know the immunologic aspect of things, I, I think over the next 10 years is gonna be just an explosion of what we're able to achieve. I think it's gonna be better results, faster and more predictable. Now, I, I was thinking about the presentation you did at the, uh, the Osteoscience Foundation presentation at the AMIS Dental Implant Conference a couple of years ago and talked about some of the things that were on the, were, it, it, it's, some were on the cusp and some have been implemented. Um, is there, you know, I, 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 you've sort of talked a little bit about some of the hurdles that we face in, in getting to the next step of scientific discovery. Um, I don't know if there's anything you know, more specific aside from research funding, which I know is always <laughs> research and funding are always the, the, the answer, but um, I'm wondering if there's any specific hurdles or if there's anything specifically that's really exciting that maybe people don't realize um, is happening or is, is close to happening. Um, you know, is there anything you can think of that would well, be well, two, maybe two, surprise I'll parse people? Off, yeah, I'll parse off two things you touched on. One is like barriers and, and you talk about research, but I think one of the barriers is dedicated time to do, to pursue some of these activities. And so when you find someone as a town of a Sean Edwards, who is a friend of mine at University of Michigan, mm -hmm. you have to protect them enough that they can do laboratory inquiry or clinical trials and figure these things out. And, and one of the problems with talented people such as Sean Edwards or Myron Tucker or other people or Tim Turk, when you're good at what you do, you get asked to do more. And so it is a, and, and medical centers and universities love the clinical revenues and the activity and the coattail effect, but somewhere people have to protect and step in and allow those people to have dedicated time to pursue those interests right. and to compensate them for it too. So that I think is a big, as big a barrier as the other. Um, and then when you talk about, um, you know, for things that we're putting in place and foreseeable future, uh, you know, we've already mentioned, but I, I think the immunologics are going to be an incredible area where we can do specific targeted gene therapy. I mean, we're now having melanoma trials here at the University of Pittsburgh that a, a very dear friend of mine down the street, actually, his nephew had metastatic melanoma and um, they ran some tests, cultured him targeted his cells, inject him, and that alone with Gamma Knife, I mean, I'm not going to say he's cured, but he's back at work full-time, and that would have been a fatal prognosis six months ago. So wow. you'll get targeted immunotherapies, what we're doing against cancer. We can also upregulate those things to get things to heal and grow. So I think when we start to look at taking people's own stem cells out and partnering them and, and, and putting them in place, that's when you're going to get really powerful machinery. Because, I mean, we know a broken bone heals in six weeks. And I mean, 
especially in our younger patients that have had auto accidents or some devastating life event or have an awful deformity, there's no reason we can't help them grow their body parts and regulate it while we do it. And so that's going to have to be done with cell therapy at the immunologic yeah. level. And I think the work is going to come out of the cancer arena. So Mark, you, you kind of alluded to, uh, you know, the issue of um, having multiple different things to do and have time protected for, for each, each of those things uh, throughout your career. You, you've worn a lot of different hats. You, you know, you've been a great clinician and surgeon. Um, you've been head of residency program, um, chairman of a department, a lot of administrative responsibilities. Um, you're, you're a dad and you're a husband. Um, how do you stay good at all, all of those things? What's, I don't know if you find out, tell me. <laughs> now, the, the pendulum always moves. And um, I know ahead of time, we talked a little bit about like, what would an ideal work week be? I guess it depends at what point in your life. I think when you're young, you just got churn and burn and you say, you don't say no ever to anything. You want to be involved. But I think mid-career and late career, you still have to be in the OR and in the office operating because it keeps you relevant. And so I think one of the, the dangers is when we have a talent person who wanted to enter into hardcore research and really work out these issues is not to totally remove them from the clinical setting is to find that balance. So to me, a mid-level career person would be great to have a day and a half a week in the ambulatory setting, in the office, a day in the OR, and then the rest of the time be dedicated to doing clinical trials or research with some admin time. So that would be an ideal work week uh, for, for a young woman or man who really wants to you know, be involved, use the skills they've been trained to do to treat people, but also it keeps them relevant. You got to keep operating because once you don't, um, you, you not being in the setting, not interacting with your colleagues, not actually confronting the issues that you're trying to solve makes you irrelevant. And so keeping operating, it, it keeps you relevant. Yeah. I, I think that's totally true. I'm, I, I, this, uh, I, I feel like what you said sort of segues into to Myron's next question here, which uh, is always about our, our perfect week. So is this a good segue, Myron? <laughs> it is. Well, um, you know, you, you've been involved in so many areas, but I think primarily um, trauma, um, orthognathic surgery, and implant reconstruction. And uh, those um, have some overlap, but there's a lot of differences between those. You know, if you could just plan um, a four-day week with uh, Friday afternoon and off next week, what, what what would you like to be doing? What what would that week look, look like clinically for you? Well, I'd, I'd take trauma call on the weekend and, and queue up. I'd have a junior faculty cover the stuff that had to get taken care of right away, and I'd save a big case for Monday and block out our time, and I'd do a nice big uh, mid-face frontal sinus fracture on Monday. Uh, then the afternoon, I'd be done by about three o'clock, do virtual planning, do a couple orthopedic virtual planning cases. Tuesday, I'd hit the office, uh, do some outpatient procedures, see patients the afternoon. Wednesday, midweek, catch your breath a little bit, administrative time, take care of some other things. Thursday, uh, as currently my OR day, I love going to the OR. It's the right day of the week. It lets you get them taken care of when, when the A-team's around and get them discharged before the A-team leaves the building on the weekends. And then Friday morning, um, uh, I would dedicate to other types of activities again. And, and the research time would be like a Wednesday afternoon, Friday morning, you know, if you had uh, time to do clinical research and where when I say research, I mean, meeting with people that are compiling data or enrolling patients or, you know, designing protocols to look at, you know, double blind studies. So, and yeah, I think knocking off Friday by about one o'clock sounds about right too. So. Okay. <laughs> That's 
sound, that sounds like a, a very efficient week. So, um, so I have a question, which is um, one that um, is, is, I guess, you know, a little bit more personal, professional. But is there a case or a patient that you'll never forget? Is there somebody that um, you've treated that really made a big impact on you that you can think of? Yeah, and I, I didn't put him in here because it is very involved and it goes, I mean, his case alone is a half hour, but it was a young man that had suffered a gunshot wound to the face and he was young and um, he's a fracker. He was originally from the South. He moved to Western PA to, to work in the Marcellus Fields and um, he suffered a horrific injury. And uh, one of my colleagues got me involved in this case. It was a stage reconstruction of basically his entire mid-face and orbits. And I mean, he had no, no facial structure at all. And with virtual planning and putting some of these things together, we talked about navigation, printed models. I mean, we were able to achieve, and, and also partnering with one of my ENT colleagues, Dr. Elias Halal and Dr. Dan Patouche. So we involved different specialties, multidisciplinary planning, and we were able to achieve a result over a year and a half's time that I think was spectacular. And the neat thing is his wife recently volunteered at Mission of Mercy and was donating her time. And she's now a trauma liaison and, and um, works on the trauma ward in the hospital oh. where he was taken care of. And that's her full-time oh, wow. job now. And their daughter uh, recently won an essay contest. They sent me a picture of him hugging his daughter. And I, I, that's all the reward I need. By the way, I forgot to one, mention one other person in my career had a profound influence on me. And that's Dr. Joe Gross. And I was just sitting there thinking about big cases. He and Myron are the two people I call when I had a big case. I wasn't quite sure what to do, or I wanted validation. <laughs> Am I doing the right thing? And what I loved about Joe, he's a, for those that know him, he's a plastic surgeon out of Seattle and uh, passed uh, just a year or so ago. But I met Joe early in my career. And what I loved about Joe was he was honest, loving, but didn't mince words. He had absolute integrity, both professionally and academically. And he was always willing to share in a very kind way what he thought and where you could improve. I mean, he would tell you what you could be doing better. And he actually changed a lot of the things I was doing because I had grown up in the oral maxillofacial surgery realm and he trained in a different time and in a different discipline. And Joe had a lot to offer. And what I loved was he would offer it freely and non-threatening. And Joe was the, the epitome of a gentleman and an interdisciplinary colleague. Like Joe checked his ego at the door um, and he was glad to share whatever he knew with whoever was willing to listen as late into the night as it took. And um, he was just an incredible role model and a very dear friend. So he's someone that had, a, I just looked at him as a human being and just one of the kindest, nicest guys I've ever met. Well, he did love to go late into the night, but yes. it, it had, had, had to include scotch. Yeah. <laughs> he was a great Amen. guy. Well, Mark, it's been uh, really great having you here with us yeah. today. I really appreciate the webinar. It was super interesting. And for our listeners, I hope you've uh, learned a little bit more about Mark as a person and what makes him tick. And that uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. Thank you yeah. very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew Martin. Yeah. Have, have a great evening. See you. Bye. Thanks. All right. To learn more about Osteoscience Foundation, visit osteoscience.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. 